The spirit has to be different from the son. We have to avoid monism. So his relationship then to the father uh, has to be then uh, described in different terms. And on the basis of the fact that the spirit is sent by the father um, and by the son, the term procession is the term that the classical theologians in the patristic period used to designate. This is the distinct mode of existence, as it were, of the Holy Spirit. Um, it does not mean in any way, shape, or form that he's less than the Son. It does say he's not a second son. So, interestingly enough, some of the opponents of the fathers in the 370s and 380s, who were basically biblicists, in one sense, in the bad sense of that term, men like Eustathius of Sebast and uh, Lucius of Cyzicus, uh, they argued, show us, show us the text. And some of them mocked uh, people like Basil and Athanasius. Oh, so the Holy Spirit's the second son. Or maybe the Holy Spirit's the son of the son and the father's grandfather. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying to think of Christian, professing Christian authors saying such things. And so the father's realized the Holy Spirit is fully God. He stands on the divine side of the division of being in this universe. On the one side is creature. Everything is creature, from galaxies to glowworms, uh, human beings and angels. We're all creatures. On the other side is God. Where does the Spirit stand? He must be on the divine side. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Well, it's great to be with you, uh, Matt. Um, my name is Michael Haken, for those of you who don't know me. Um, I teach uh, church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is a sister seminary to where uh, Dr. Barrett teaches at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. Um, I've been at uh, Southern since 2002, I initially came in a part-time capacity and then started full-time in 2007. And uh, all through that period since 2007, I've been living in Canada, though working full-time on campus, which means that up until uh, the current pandemic, I would probably spend about five months on campus. Uh, there is a hotel there, the Legacy Center, where basically I, I, I would stay. and I. I reckon that since my coming to Southern nearly 20 years ago now, um, I've probably lived in that hotel for about <laughs> six years. So um, uh, in many ways, uh, Southern has been the acme of my academic career. Um, it's a tremendous uh, school for any number of reasons. Uh, for me personally, uh, to be able to teach with other colleagues in church history has been an absolute delight. Uh, there are four of us in church history, and uh, normally uh, church historians are the only the only historian on faculty. And there might be a you know in most seminaries there might be a couple of New Testament men, Old Testament men, but normally only one historian. And so it's been fabulous to have that kind of interplay with other other professors, which means I've been able to focus on the areas. Uh, that I have specialized in, which really are two. Uh, patristics, uh, I began in patristics. Um, I'd always loved uh, Greek and Roman history. And um, when I was converted and sensed academia as Christian academia as my calling, um, it was natural that I would end up in patristics. And in the patristic world, which really runs from around 100 uh, to about 500 or 600, depending on where you and, uh, terminate it. Uh, it's the fourth century that has been my focus, and I had the privilege of studying under a Jesuit historian named uh, John Egan, uh, and he had a very distinguished pedigree. He had done his uh, PhD at the Sorbonne, studying under Charles Canigiser, who is a who was the last student of a major patristic scholar in the 20th century, Jean Donilou, 
and um, Donnie Liu and uh, was really a kind of a key figure in the uh, resurgence of study of patristics in the 1920s through the 1950s. And Carnegie Sayer was an Athanasius expert. Uh, John Egan's uh, expertise was in uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. And initially, when I started working with him, I wanted to do a, a doctoral thesis on the, the, the text of the Pauline corpus in Nazianzen. But Dr. Egan is, was trained as really a kind of a, a historical theologian or intellectual historian. And that kind of work was really outside of his purview. And so I shifted to, to an area that I had real interest in, both personally and academically, and that is pneumatology. And uh, fourth century is a rich area for that because you have the production of probably the first treatises that were dedicated to the work of, work of the Holy Spirit, namely that by Basil of Caesarea, uh, his De, De Spiritu Sancto, which is on the Holy Spirit. And then uh, Didymus, uh, Didymus the Blind, uh, mm -hmm. the book of the same title, and also Athanasius's letters to a bishop named Serapion dealing with pneumatological controversy in the 350s in the Nile Delta in Egypt. And then obviously you also have the expansion of the Nicene Creed at the Council of Constantinople. And so it's a very rich area. My doctoral thesis focused on the defense of the deity of the Holy Spirit in Athanasius and Basil and their defense in terms of how they used one and two Corinthians to defend the fact mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit is fully God and worthy of adoration, along with the Father and the Son. He shares the being of the, the, the full uh, essence of the Father and the Son, and he is also worthy, therefore, of adoration. Um, in more recent years, um, well, actually, beginning in the 1990s, I began to focus on 18th century studies, partly, be mainly because <clears throat> when I would be invited sometimes to churches to do seminars on church history, um, it became very evident they weren't interested in the fathers. Mm. Uh, that is changing. But in the 1990s, there was still very little interest in the fathers and it really had to be post-Reformation. And so I began studying 18th century Baptist history as a kind of um, secondary field. But over the years, it, it basically has become the dominant area of my research. But again, uh, what I've focused on there um, in large part has been Trinitarian discussions in the 18th century. The 18th century is a huge battleground. Um, this is uh, regarding the Trinity, and this is contrary to a lot of public narrative or about the, the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, you look at a lot of surveys of the history of Trinitarian doctrine, and they'll leap from Calvin to Schleiermacher. So from the 16th century to the early 19th century, uh, Schleiermacher being the father of German liberalism. And it's as if nothing happened in between. Well, in fact, what did happen was a fading of the Trinitarian imagination, as uh, the way Philip Dixon in a book on 17th century Trinitarian debates puts it. And um, so much so that when Schleiermacher comes along in the early 19th century, um, he can relegate the Trinity to an appendix. And um, uh, your book, um, your recent book on the Trinity, uh, really in some ways is picking up on the, the, the lacuna, the, the lack of, of talking about the Trinity, um, not only in liberal circles, but in evangelical circles. And uh, evangelicals were, for a variety of reasons, guilty of the same crime, uh, basically not talking about the Trinity, not handing on the Trinity, so the central, the central fact of our faith, which is that the God whom we worship is one who has revealed himself as a triune being, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. As Gregory Nazianzus once said, when I, when I think of God, I think of Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, that has not been passed on in the 20th century. And, um, and I actually do sometimes in my classes in church history, one, uh, when I deal with the fathers, and their Trinitarian discussions, I asked the students, so, you know, I'll have a class of Church History One students at, um, this is your survey in Church History at Southern, and um, 
there'll be a hundred students in there. And I asked them, and most of them have spent 20, 25 years in the church. You know, these are men and women in their late 20s, 30s, some in the 40s. How many sermons have you ever heard on the Trinity? And if five people put up their hand, you'll be lucky. There might be five. There might be 10 any given year. And then I press them, and they might have heard one sermon. So you think of all the sermons that 100 students have heard in 20, 25 years of church going, and they've heard one sermon on the most important fact of the Christian faith. And if anything demonstrates, that's anecdotal, I know, but if anything demonstrates the, the, appalling, the appalling lack of thought regarding the, 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 the God whom we adore and love and whom we proclaim, um, it, it is that, um, that there is, that the, the, the doctrine of Trinity is not being publicly taught in our, in our uh, churches. And to some degree, you know, that goes back to this long, long neglect that is in the 20th century. And then in some ways, interesting enough, it's tied to, uh, to liberalism and its re- relegation of the Trinity as a, um, a philosophical overlay of the Greeks upon a simple gospel of uh, Jesus and his father. And um, nothing could be further from the truth, obviously, about the New Testament. And the, the early church was passionate about this issue. Um, so, uh, hence, uh, real necessity for the book that you've written uh, on the Trinity, the recent book, uh, which uh, brings it down to the level of, of the person in the pew the the realization of the need to to think about uh, who God is. Yeah, yeah. Michael, thank you so much for for sharing that. Uh, both both your your own kind of pilgrimage and uh, so so much of the work you've done on the fathers, but how that has corresponded then to the work that you've done on the Holy Spirit. Uh, that that last point you made. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. In, in fact, in, in, in the book, Simply Trinity, uh, before I even get to the chapter on the Holy Spirit, uh, I, I did feel like I, I had to, towards the beginning, um, dip into a little bit of, of the modern scene. Uh, and I, I do talk about uh, Protestant liberalism in particular. And Schleiermacher, as, as an example, uh, like you mentioned, because uh, I don't know, and maybe I'd love to hear, you know, whether this resonates at all with, with your own experience, but I sometimes don't know if, if evangelicals realize that when we uh, just put sideline the Trinity, uh, in all kinds of ways, um, or at, at the very best, we, we may talk about spiritual gifts, but we, we never preach on the Trinity, let alone on the Holy Spirit, and then we never, I, I'm guessing that most Christians have never even heard about crucial doctrines like the Spirit's eternal procession that's just very foreign um well when all of when we start to witness this disintegration i can't help but wonder whether uh evangelicals realize that uh while we may deny protestant liberalism uh our methodology at times and our assumptions uh there are some similarities when we go that route. Now it's, you know, I realize it's, it's more uh, accidental and unintentional, but you're right. Um, when we look at the modern era, both the neglect and, and kind of the sidelining of the spirit as, as some, some type of additional dogma that was imposed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, or this, I sometimes sense this, that uh, a type of mindset that says, uh, well, you know, talking about the Trinity apart from creation and salvation or the Holy Spirit, well, that's just speculative. And uh, let's just focus on what 
the spirit does. Well, those type of approaches actually leave us quite vulnerable then to to Protestant liberalism, and whether we realize it or not. I find it so fascinating, and you kind of mentioned this a minute ago. I find it so fascinating that, uh, well, if we could resurrect some of the fathers, the Cappadocians, for example, uh, or Augustine, um, and so many others, I think that they would they would be shocked. Uh, they would be shocked because for them, uh, discussing the Holy Spirit was just considered um, not only essential to their polemics and their defense of the Christian faith, but it was considered actually uh, essential to formulating the Christian faith. And it would it would have just been unthinkable for them to try to formulate the Christian faith without um, without understanding uh, who this spirit is from eternity. Um, I can't help but think, you know, the, the Nicene Creed, uh, and, and here I'm, I'm referring to it, more of its, its uh, final form in, in 381 with uh, Constantinople, and that beautiful statement uh, at the end when it says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father, who is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and the Son, who spoke through the prophets. This, this type of language is, um, it, it should be just rooted in our Christian confession of both who God is and, and what God has done. But I do, I do worry that whether that's always the case in our in our churches. Yeah, I think um, in the course of the 20th century, I think there's been a number of things that have uh, inhibited Christians, evangelical Christians, from talking about the Spirit. Um, uh, some of it related to, I think, uh, trajectories of, of uh, liberalism. Um, I mean, the, the foundations of the rejection of Trinitarianism are tied back in the 18th century. That's why the 18th century and 17th centuries are so important in the debates about the Trinity. And the the major opponent of the Trinity in English-speaking circles was Sassinianism. Hmm. And Sassinianism argued for um, the inspiration of the Bible, and they were biblicists to the core, at least they claimed to be. And the earliest books written against the Trinity in the 1690s by men like Samuel Clark and William Whiston, uh, Samuel Clark in particular, he argued the Bible and the Bible alone is the the religion of the Protestants. And if you cannot give the exact phrase from the Bible, uh, you shouldn't be using it in theology. So words like essence, subsistence, person, uh, procession, generation, began to be junked. And, um, of course, this developed in the course of the, sixth, of the 18th, 18th century, so that liberalism really is the first kind of purveyor of a biblicism that refuses to talk about God with terminology that is extra-biblical. Yeah. And uh, once you get evangelicals picking this up, which you do in the 19th century, um, the 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 traditional way of speaking about God is basically going to be dropped, and not surprisingly, you get all kinds of confusion, uh, ranging from what we call modalism, which you talk about in the chapter on the Holy Spirit, which is the confusion of the persons, all the way over to maybe even tritheism, uh, maybe not being actually taught, but implicitly people approaching God as tritheistic, etc. In addition to that, uh, then various forms of subordinationism. Um, for example, a good example is Anne Griffiths, a Welsh evangelical hymn writer, absolutely remarkable hymn writer, lived only about 30 years. She died in childbirth at the age of 29 or so in 1805. And she has about a dozen letters. She is the probably preeminent evangelical hymn writer in the late 18th century in Wales. She has about half a dozen letters. In one of them, she, she writes to a friend named 
Elizabeth Evans. And Anne says that one of the great things that has gripped her mind is the blasphemy that she has been guilty of in subordinating the Holy Spirit. She says, as for the Father and the Son, I reviewed them as both fully God, but I viewed the Spirit as some sort of subordinate functionary to the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. And um, essentially, I think uh, this sort of subordinationism, where we haven't properly viewed the persons of the Godhead uh, all as fully God, uh, we don't even know how to talk about that in the 20th century because of the loss of uh, theological categories, which were hammered out by the fathers on the basis of Holy Scripture. They're not, they're not going beyond Scripture. The battles in the 4th century um, are not, as, say, Adolf von Harnack, the great liberal German historian, argued. He argued that, you know, when the gospel went out uh, from Hebrew soil to Greek soil, all of the fundamental Biblical categories were lost, and you have this overlay of Greek philosophical thought. What is amazing to me, that's a liberal, what is amazing to me is that evangelicals in the 20th century have bought into the same narrative. And they've argued that all of this talk about the Trinity, the word Trinity even, um, eternal procession, eternal generation, they're not biblical terms, and therefore we, we, we shouldn't use them. But then you get yourself into the problems of then how do you distinguish the persons within the Godhead? Uh, you, can't, you can't dispense with these terms, which were hammered out in the early centuries on the basis of biblical texts. Um, the fathers are not doing philosophy. Athanasius and Basil are not doing philosophy. Their, their context is church life. Their context is trying to understand the God who is des described for us in the scriptures. Um, and the use of terminology uh, that, yes, some of it is not it, it found in the scriptures, but it captures the biblical message perfectly. Yeah. And uh, once you lose that terminology and reject the classical ways of talking about God, you're going to get all kinds of problems emerging. And we've seen them. We've seen them in the 20th century. Now, there are, when you come to the Holy Spirit specifically, I think other issues come to the fore as well. I think um, the rise of Pentecostalism mm. and then the, uh, the charismatic movement in the 1960s and then the third wave so-called in the 1990s with the Vineyard and John Wimber. I think a lot of evangelicals are afraid of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And um, they couldn't do what, say, Charles Spurgeon did. Uh, he would sometimes, this is before the rise of Pentecostalism in the 1870s, 80s, he would sometimes stop in the middle of his preaching and ask for the Holy Spirit to come in power. I think if an evangelical minister did that today, people would think the guy's gone charismatic, you know? <laughs> um, so it, there are other factors as well that have entered into. So you've yeah. got this. I think we're, we, we're in a, um, this is a word that's probably too heavily used, a bit of a toxic scenario when it comes to thinking theologically about yeah. the Godhead. Because we have this combination of liberal biblicism, yeah. this kind of liberal roots of, of a biblicistic approach, which goes back to the Sassinianism, which has long been long forgotten. Yeah. And then in addition to that, we've got this fear of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so we don't talk about the Spirit. It, it's interesting to me that even for among evangelicals who celebrate um, the church here, um, Easter, Christmas, Nobody celebrates Pentecost. Right. Not even the Pentecostals celebrate Pentecost. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in the, uh, the, the broad outlines of the church here. Advent, Christmas, um, uh, Easter, Pentecost. And if we celebrate the week after Pentecost in the church calendar is Trinity Sunday. Right. And if we kept Trinity Sunday, at least you'd hear a message on the Trinity once a year. Yeah. But... Um, so we've got a lot of ground to recover, um, I think. And uh, I, your book, I think, is very helpful in, uh, for people in the pew being able to understand uh, the, the issues and the debates and how the church has historically and classically thought about God. Mm. Michael, the, well, for, I think the first thing I want to say to that uh, is thank you because that history you just gave is 
it, it explains where things have gone wrong and where we've tripped up in so many ways. Uh, it, just as a, a bit of a footnote here, um, a little encouragement, uh, the, the church where I am an elder among you know other elders as well, but um, uh, this we, we've, we've been revisiting these type of discussions and they've said, why don't, why don't we have a, at least a sermon or, or a series of sermons on the Trinity? And let's include one on the Holy Spirit. And uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, the church has gone, say, towards a, an extreme Pentecostalism. Um, and at the same time, uh, it doesn't mean that we're buying into a type of, of narrow biblicism. We actually want the people to contemplate uh, who the Trinity is, but who the Holy Spirit is in a way that I don't think they've ever heard before. Uh, it's interesting that you mention biblicism. I think you're spot on because, uh, you know, there could be a lot of reasons why some say this, uh, um, a category a concept like eternal procession of the spirit, but you see right there in the Nicene Creed, uh, there could be a lot of reasons why this is just completely foreign to most Christians, dare I say, even a lot of pastors today. Uh, but I think biblicism is is one of those reasons. It is one of those reasons. You you like you mentioned, uh, it is hardwired into the rise of Protestant liberalism. And when they reinterpret history, uh, they look at these received Christian doctrines and they just dismiss them as additions, as uh, impositions of Greek philosophy. I think the first thing I want to say at that point is, my goodness, how insulting, right? to the fathers, as if they were not intelligent enough or wise enough to be able to look at Greek thought and discern carefully uh, ways in which, okay, there can be correspondence and ways in which, nope, can't go there. Um, Whether it's an, an, an Augustine, for example, or whether it's uh, an Athanasius, whether it's um, the Gregories or Basil, I mean, the list goes on. Uh, I want to say, what, hold on a second. Um, these individuals, uh, they were very well trained in so many ways so that they could discern, okay, there may be correspondence uh, so that we see, you know, in Greek thought, for example, uh, uh, the concept of, say, immutability. Um, but then they would recognize, uh, at the same time, we think Greek thought uh, slipped up when it came to, say, the preexistence of the soul, and and maybe their logic there uh, went, went off the tracks in this way. Uh, they, seem, they seem to be able to dis- make those discernments that we don't really give them very much credit for. And then, isn't it interesting, I hear this all the time from evangelical quarters in which that same charge is made, you know, whether it's eternal generation or, or divine simplicity or with the spirit, eternal spiration, the spirit proceeding from all eternity, from the Father and the Son, this charge of, oh, that's, uh, that's so that's foreign to scripture. That's just a Greek imposition on the Christian faith and, and so on and so on. But when you go back and you read a Harnack, that's, that's the same, same line of thought. It's a type of biblicism that I think looks at the text of scripture uh, very narrowly to say, well, if I don't see it in this particular verse, uh, then, then I'm just going to dismiss it or this is just a systematic category. But actually, when you, when you look at the fathers, so many of them were careful exegetes 
and biblical theologians as well as 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 theolo- systematic theologians. Um, you know, I can't help when I when you know I read the Cappadocians. It, it's remarkable to me how they just to give one example here. They look at John's gospel, for example, right? Uh, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, um, where you have, you begin, Jesus begins to uh, teach his disciples about the Holy Spirit. And when the fathers look at John's gospel, they notice, could it be that Jesus has every, he he can give us every assurance that the Father and the Son will send the Spirit at Pentecost. Why? Well, because this is the same Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. And so this this mission of the Spirit, which has so many uh, remarkable benefits for us as Christians, both individually and corporately, from the indwelling of the Spirit to our regeneration, to our sanctification, and one day our glorification, uh, the fathers looked at the way that the Spirit was was spoken of in in, in these ways um, in Scripture, and they notice how well this is only possible. This is only true that the Spirit can can accomplish this great work of salvation or, or apply this great work of salvation that Christ has accomplished because this is the Spirit of Christ. Uh, this is the Spirit who proceeds. Um, from from the Father and Son, but from all eternity, uh, that that move uh, that move from the mission of the Spirit to then contemplate the procession of the Spirit from eternity, um, it's one that unfortunately we don't do very much of, and then when we do rub up against it, we think, oh, that's speculative, or that's Greek, or that that's an imposition on the text, and and actually, the fathers are saying, absolutely not. This is the very DNA. Uh, this is the very DNA of the of, of Trinitarian revelation. In fact, your own salvation cannot be applied by the Spirit unless this is who the who the Spirit is. Um, that the, do you sense that missing in churches? I suppose you know we're you're teaching students as well. Do you find that a, a doctrine like eternal procession is just foreign? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I think part of it is because the, 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 there's a feeling, well, you know, where, where, where is it actually in, in scripture? Um, and the fathers drew it from passages like John 15, 26, and also from the little preposition in 1 Corinthians 2, 12, the spirit who is from God. And um, the the actual creed, uh, the Nicene Creed in the expansion at the Council of Constantinople, in the very article that you read um, and recited there about the Spirit, they they draw from John fifteen twenty six and First Corinthians two twelve. Um, the fathers are sometimes asking questions we're not asking. Mm. Um, uh, that doesn't lessen their commitment to uh, the Bible as the ultimate source of truth. Um, what they're doing is drawing out the implications. So if we take the Bible as God's revelation, who is the God who's revealed in Holy Scripture? And the doctrine of the Trinity, as hammered out in the Nicene Creed, is the only viable, not one viable, but the only viable model of the God who has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. And the, the, the relationship of the Spirit to the Father uh, has to be different from the relationship of the Son to the Father. The Father has generated the Son, and the, the term generation there uh, bespeaks the difference between the Father and the Son, but it also bespeaks the fact that the Son shares the Father's uh, being to the full. And uh, there have been some have argued, you know, eternal generation is not in the Bible as well, and that's just plain wrong. Uh, John 1, where it talks about the only begotten God, that's the KJV translation, monogenes. Monogenes, I mean, part of the problem here for 20th century readers has been the uh, the way that verse has been translated. 
And it's very interesting. One of the, it's been translated, Monogonese, sorry, has been translated as unique and only. And um, that argument for that actually goes back to a doctoral thesis at Southern in the 1940s, in which the supervisor was Dale Moody, who is the only professor at Southern prior to the conservative resurgence who was fired for heresy. Even the liberals felt he was way, way off board and he was let go for basically denying the abstract of principles in a number of key places. Wow. And from Dale Moody, it went into Bauer, Danker, and Arnton Gingrich, BDAG, and it has influenced enormous numbers of scholars, and it's just wrong. All of the fathers take monogenes, all of them, not as unique. They take it as uh, only begotten in that context, and therefore see it as proof text, and rightly so, for eternal generation. Now, the spirit has to be different from the son. We have to avoid modalism. So his relationship then to the father uh, has to be then uh, described in different terms. And on the basis of the fact that the spirit is sent by the father um, and by the son, the term procession is the term that the classical theologians in the patristic period used to designate. This is the distinct mode of existence as it were, of the Holy Spirit. Um, it does not mean in any way, shape, or form that he's less than the Son. It does say he's not a second son. So interestingly enough, some of the opponents of the fathers in the 370s and 380s, who were basically biblicists in one sense, in the bad sense of that term, men like Eustathius of Sebast and uh, Lucius of Cyzicus, uh, they argued, show us. Show us the text. And some of them mocked uh, people like Basil and Athanasius. Oh, so the Holy Spirit's a second son. Or maybe the Holy Spirit's the son of the son, and the father's a grand grandfather. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying to think of Christian, professing Christian authors saying such things. And so the fathers realized the Holy Spirit is fully God. He stands on the divine side of the division of being in this universe. On the one side is creature. Everything is creature from galaxies to glowworms, uh, human beings and angels, we're all creatures. On the other side is God. Where does the spirit stand? He must be on the divine side because as you've just pointed out there, he does what only God can do. He sanctifies us, he brings us new birth, he will glorify us, raise us from the dead, etc. So he must be God. He cannot be in his relationship to the father, another son. So you can't talk about the generation of the spirit because it would basically be making the spirit equivalent to the son or another son, which he's never described in the Bible. And the description that the, the, the um, fathers found was this idea that the spirit proceeds from the father. Ekporuo um, uh, in the, uh, the, in the uh, New Testament uh, is the, the Greek verb. Ekporomai, actually. Um, and um, uh, that becomes the phrase by which we describe the relationship between the Son of the Spirit to the Father in a way of distinguishing him from the Son and avoiding modalism. Now, if you press the fathers, so what exactly does that mean? Well, we are now pressing into what they would describe as a mystery. And all of them are quite happy to talk about mystery. In fact, Augustine said, you know, we wouldn't have had to get engaged in any of this discussion if there weren't any heretics. Uh, but we need to. We have to. And um, so the, the, the fathers then are able, able to do, a, to do a, a fabulous job for us. Number one, they are rooted in the scriptures in their discussion of God. Second, they avoid a a crude biblicism. And uh, evangelicals in the 20th century seem to have opted for that crude biblicism. Um, you know, if you want to find that crude biblicism, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, well, the firmest advo advocates of an anti-Trinitarianism, and yet they, they, they affirm the, the, the Bible, um, and you, you, and I'm, I'm not, please know what I'm not saying. I'm not saying evangelicals who have problems with the classical formulation of the Godhead um, are equivalent to Jehovah's Witnesses, but it's the same sort of methodology. 
And it's a failure to see that the Bible itself provides foundations, the foundations for the classical uh, discussion of the Trinity, that in, in doing so, uh, the fathers are actually true to the Bible in a way that their biblicist opponents are not. Even though their biblicist opponents claim, you know, we're only, we're only, we're only saying what the Bible says. That's what the Sicinians said, too, in the 18th century. And it issued in the rank liberalism of the 19th century, in which eventually, you know, you dispense with Jesus as any sort of divine being. And he's just, a, he's just this fabulous teacher who taught about human brotherhood and a divine father. And uh, his cross is an example of love. And there's a the downplaying of all of the key themes of, 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 um, of Christianity. So these things are vital to talk about. And even more vital today for, uh, for the following reason, our encounter with Islam. I mean, Islam forces us to talk about the Trinity. You know, one of the, one of the things you mentioned here, and, and I, I find this uh, so convicting, is that if we if we approach if we approach the scriptures especially when we when we're thinking about the holy spirit if we approach the scriptures through that that narrow biblicist lens um not only are we methodologically uh inching our our way to a, a slew of of uh Groups from Protestant liberalism to, you know, a Jehovah Witness at your door. Uh, not only are we putting ourselves in a very vulnerable vulnerable position in which it makes it very difficult then to counter some of the apologetic objections to Christianity and to the doctrine of the Trinity from from Islam, uh, but it also it also robs us of the many ways that that the Christian canon uh, reflects on on who the spirit is uh, I mean you've mentioned you've mentioned one of them there I, I appreciated uh, what you said about the son's eternal generation and and how short-sighted we can be when we uh, just assume that oh uh, it must not be in John's gospel. It's a, it is shocking how many translations just followed <laughs> followed that pattern, and I worry a little bit that uh, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we do something similar. And how do we do this? I I, I wonder if one of the ways we do this is we see what the Spirit does in salvation history uh, for the sake of our our salvation, and um, we stop there. We we really stop there. Uh, you know, you mentioned Augustine, for example. Augustine didn't he he didn't stop short. Uh, when you look at Augustine, he not only would look at uh, John's gospel to understand uh, what this means for the Spirit to proceed this way, uh, but Augustine would reflect on. A whole number of other biblical motifs that shed light on the eternal relation of origin for for the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, there's there's so many that we could we could talk about from you know the way that the Spirit is spoken of as breath, for example, um, uh, the way that the Spirit is spoken of as gift, which is I, when I was writing this, I was just shocked uh, as I revisited the scriptures, how many times the Spirit is spoken of in this way as, as a, not only the one who is given to us, but as the one uh, who, who proceeds from the Father and the Son as gift itself. This, was, this is the whole foundation then for, for why the Spirit can then come. And, and and be given to us for for salvation, but another one is love. 
uh, which I find evangelicals today have have very little association with, and and when they do, they they immediately dismiss it. But Augustine would speak of, of course, he would speak of you know love is a divine attribute, and so in that sense, love is. Um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is one God. God is love, and so he would, of course, speak of it in that that way. But he would also say there there is a sense in which uh, Scripture can uh, pinpoint the Spirit and call the Spirit love. Um, and of course, this isn't that removed from that language of gift in the New Testament. Um, Augustine, for example, uh, would go to uh, you know, First John, since you were talking about John's gospel, but Augustine would go to First John, where uh, John uh, not only has a lot to say about God's love and, and the way that then affects us, but John goes so far to then start speaking of the Spirit in this way uh, as, as the love that, that proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, Michael, I mean, you've done um a lot of work on the fathers why why is augustine why does he find this so persuasive what is your what is your thought on that um that's a very good question um i think what augustine is doing is he's looking at um first of all an issue of spirituality uh, I mean, one of his favorite verses, probably his favorite verse is Romans 5, 5, that the Holy Spirit, um, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Mm. And so um, this whole idea of, of the believer is love for God and God's love for the believer. Um, why do we love God? And for Augustine, um, by the time that he writes the Confessions, he has gone through the book of Romans and become convinced <clears throat> that without the prior movement of God's grace, none of us would ever love God. We wouldn't move towards God. And so God must first demonstrate and show and move us to love him. Um, he must pour his love into our hearts, as it were. And who brings that love into our hearts is the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. So uh, for Augustine, then, there is this, and I, I'll use a technical term here, this perichoretic relationship, the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Godhead that we participate in when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. I mean, this is the basic, <clears throat> this is the basic um, difference between a believer and unbeliever. The believer has the Holy Spirit, the unbeliever does not, and this is basic for Augustine. And the Spirit is given to us as gift, but he's also the love of God. And uh, once Augustine starts down that road, okay, so I the reason why I love God, and Romans 5, 5, the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit is being given to us. Uh, Augustine takes the love of God there as, a, um, as an objective genitive. Uh, it's our love for God, not God's love for us that he's thinking of here. And either is possible. Uh, most 20th century commentators, if I'm correct, take it as an, a, um, a subject of genitive. They namely, it's the love that God has for us is poured into our hearts. But the reason why, but for Augustine, it's, it's our love for God. And how can we love God in this way? Well, because it's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then, he then reasons, the Holy Spirit then must be the love that God has for himself, the love that the Father has for the Son, and the Son for the Father. And he believes he finds uh, biblical proof of this in 1 John 4, where it talks about God is love. And how is God love? Um, and in the text, and it's dense, his argument, it's in De Trinitate on the Holy Spirit, but it's dense, but he concludes that when it says God is love, it's speaking specifically about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. And so when, um, how is it that we can love God? Well, we can love God because we have the Spirit, who is the love of God. And so 
it, it's tied very much to issues of conversion, spirituality, um, regeneration preceding faith, uh, the sovereignty of God's grace in conversion. And um, I think, uh, in other words, he's, he's got a nexus of uh, ideas and texts. He's not just pulling this out of thin air. Uh, and I think his reasoning is solid. Um, and on the basis of that reasoning, the later tradition will argue uh, for what we call the filioque, that mm -hmm. the son not only proceeds from the father, the spirit proceeds from the father, but he also proceeds from the father and the son, which I think is a right addition. Yeah. Both before the Augustinian reasons, but also because the the fact that pneumatology in the New Testament is Christocentric. Yeah. It is the spirit of Christ. It's the Christ-centered spirit. Mm -hmm. And there's no immediate sense of that in the creed as it stood without that addition and the, the spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. But all that aside, uh, Augustine's instincts, I think, are dead on. Yeah. That uh, the, the, when we say God is love, he needs, he needs both a, there needs to be both a lover and a beloved. Well, yeah. that's there. Yeah. Uh, the, the father is the lover and the beloved is the son and actually vice versa. And the, he Augustine then takes the other step, which is that the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the father and the son. Yeah. And when he comes into our hearts, we then now participate in this. And it's really a remarkable. So he ties together theology and spirituality um, and it has an enormous influence upon the Christian tradition. Bernard of Clairvaux is Augustinian in this regard when he talks about in um, his sermons of the Song of Songs. He begins with that phrase, kiss me and many kisses. What's that? Well, that's the, that's the Holy Spirit who's kissing us with the love of God. Oh. Uh, Jonathan Edwards in his personal narrative, uh, sorry, his uh, essay on the Trinity, completely Augustinian in his reflection of uh, the love of God flooding our hearts providing the foundation for all our spirituality. And um, without that love, we wouldn't love the Father and we wouldn't love the Son. But because the Spirit is the love of the Father for the Son and vice versa, we now enter into that divine love that has existed mm. from eternity past. Mm -hmm. It is tremendously rich. Yeah. And um, we lose all that if we don't think about the procession of the Spirit. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the, I, well, first of all, I, I agree with you 100% here. Uh, the way that, that he describes the spirit like this, uh, it, it's, it's not only very biblical, but scriptural, but it, it's theologically rich in the way that it helps us understand both the distinctiveness of the spirit as as proceeding from the Father and the Son, but also the equality of the Spirit with the Father and the Son, so that we can say what the Nicene Creed says, which is the Spirit is worshipped together with the Father and the Son. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, folks will object. Uh, I've heard this um, before, where they they will say, uh, well. Uh, we can't describe the spirit that way because that would, you know, as love, because then that would uh, result in uh, Sabellianism. Um, to which, you know, there's a lot of things that, that could be said in response. But um, uh, one of the things that, that I would say is, well, let's, if you think about what Sabellianism is, uh, Sabellianism cannot describe the triune God in terms of love. Uh, why? Well, because in Sabellianism, there's not, there's not a plurality of persons to love. <laughs> so no. it, it, doesn't, it doesn't actually, it, it doesn't stick. I mean, if you think about it this way, that for, for Sabellianism, um, love has no beloved. And and it certainly can't have any any lover. Uh, that would just be, it, it's an impossibility. I mean, for Sabellianism, essentially, it reduces the persons to 
to certain roles that make it make it quite impossible then for the civilian uh, to speak of love in a in in terms of uh, a hypostasis, uh, it or 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 to use uh, some of the more traditional language, uh, the persons as as a subsistence. Um, so all that to say, when we talk about the Holy Spirit as love, um, whether you're talking about the Father's East or West, the way that they are reading Scripture, they're 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 speaking of of the Spirit as love within these classical Orthodox categories uh, that that do serve to preserve both the equality of the Spirit with the Father and Son, but also then marks out the Spirit as, as the one who spirates, not, not, not someone who's generated, that's the Son, but uh, someone who spirates from the Father, and I agree with you, and the Son as well. And so if, if that's the case, then um, whenever we talk about the Spirit in, in, in this way, uh, we're not we're not necessarily going the route of say 20th century social trinitarianism, which redefines Trinity more in terms of of a cooperative society. Rather, when we talk about the beloved, the love, the lover, and the love itself in that Augustinian tradition, well, we are assuming that these persons are subsistences of that of the same divine essence. Um, and each each person then has a personal property. In this case, love is is accentuating, highlighting, and drawing our eyes to the Spirit's personal property, which is proceeding from from the Father and the Son. If we read, if we understand it that way, in that very Augustinian way, uh, well, it it actually serves to preserve. Orthodox Orthodox categories, rather than than to undermine them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that said, I maybe to 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 wrap up the the conversation. I, I'd love to to give you you know the last word. Uh, I I think that sometimes when Christians do talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, if it's not, you know, in, in terms of you know a Pentecostal context, uh, they're they're a bit silent and don't quite know what to say. Um, at times, they they might even uh, view the Holy Spirit as um, a bit pointless, and that may stem from their own ambiguity. Uh, there's there's a a, a statement. Um, that comes from Anselm, uh, who's who's one of I, I know you have your favorites. Anselm is is certainly one of mine, um, and and it's a a bit of a shocking statement uh, in which he says that if we if we have if we do not have this understanding of the spirit that that we've been discussing, Anselm says you don't have you don't have a, a Christian. God, you don't have even a Christian faith. And when I first read that statement from him, I I was immediately taken back. Like, is he just being using hyperbole? But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, why why wouldn't he be right? Because if we are Trinitarians in the true sense of 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 that term, wouldn't it? Why wouldn't this be that consequential? What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, on, I, on this, I, I read that in your. Um, uh, it must come from his work on the procession of the Holy Spirit, and I I noted that that statement in your chapter on the Holy Spirit in uh, your new book, and it's really struck me um, as uh, quite a remarkable statement on a number of levels. It appears initially like, as you said, hyperbole, but. Um, if you think it through, I mean, really what he's saying is that uh, without the spirit, I mean, Edwards will make the same comment, not that exact comment, but will make the same point this way. Without the spirit, all of Christianity falls flat to the ground. 
the work of the Father in sending the Son, the Son's death and resurrection uh, to save and justify us. Uh, unless the Spirit applies them, it's as if they never, never took place. And for the Spirit to apply them in a saving way, he must be God. And if he's God, he must differ from the Father and the Son. Otherwise, you've got modalism. And you don't have the biblical understanding of God. So you can see then, and Psalmist thought this through, if the spiration of the, of the Spirit be not true, Christianity is non-existent. The Christian faith falls to the ground. <clears throat> and I think he's right. What he's driving home here is that our salvation is grounded in the work of all three persons. That unified work that produces Christians. And if the spirit be not God, we can't be saved. But the spirit, for the spirit to save us, he must not only be fully divine, but he must also be clearly intellectually distinguishable from the, from the spirit and the father, the son and the father. And so we have to avoid, on the one hand, uh, any sort of subordination of the spirit that he's less than God. And on the other, we have to avoid modalism. And uh, yeah, it's an amazing statement, but I think he's right. I, you know, I've read the procession of the Holy Spirit. It's a, I mean, it's a very, I think it's the most difficult of Anselm's works. Yes. Um, But I don't remember reading that line. So I'm very very thankful for you to drawing it to my attention. And yeah. It's really a great statement. And it's very provocative. It's yeah. the sort of thing you'd love to do on a PhD. Maybe I shouldn't give you this idea. Uh, your PhD <laughs> comp exam, you know, put it on a comp exam. So Anson said this, discuss. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. You, my my students are, are uh, going to be holding their fist up. Oh, wh- why did he give that idea? <laughs> But That's a great, it's a great one, one line sentence that just opens up enormous avenues of theological reflection. That's right. That's right. And that, uh, that's one of the, the reasons I like Anselm so much is he, he tends to do that. Very short works, very short. Um, but in one sentence, he can make a statement like that, and it helps you understand, oh, wow, that the entire Christian faith, our entire salvation is, is completely undermined and destroyed if, if the Holy Spirit uh, is not who Scripture says the Holy Spirit is. Yeah. So, so profound. Michael, this has been, uh, been delight. really good, really good. I, I always learn so much uh, when when I hear hear you reflect on well just about anything, but um, especially when it comes to the fathers and the Trinity and and of course Baptist thought as well. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, you know we've been talk, talking about you know uh, my book simply Trinity, but um, I really want to to also tell those who are watching and and listening uh, about about your books as well. Um, I mean, one book that I would say people must pick up is, um, and I hope I'm getting the title right, uh, Rediscovering the Church Fathers. Yeah, yeah, this one. Yes, that one. Uh, by Published by Crossway. It's, yep. it's uh, I mean, for what could be a 500-page book, you have done <clears throat> us a service by, by putting just decades of your research into um, 200, 250 pages or so. And uh, uh, so that one's a must. Um, what other, let, let me just put this to you, because I know you have you have edited and you've written dozens and dozens of books. Um, besides that one, if you can name maybe one or two more. Yeah, on the topic that we're talking about, this, this one, which came out a few years ago, oh, about good. three years ago, uh, giving glory to the consubstantial trinity which basically three essays that deal with the very things we've been talking about, yeah. uh, taking us from the New Testament to the Council of Constantinople. Excellent. Um, and uh, dealing with uh, the deity of uh, the Son and the deity of the Holy Spirit and the resolution after the long conflict we call the Arian conflict in the fourth century. Excellent. 
Um, that would be the other one. And then uh, more recently, um, this one has come out oh. in the third edition. Okay. Uh, which deals with a lot of new metallurgical themes, obviously. Okay. And uh, that's published by H&E Publishing. The other one was by Free Grace uh, Press. Okay. Yeah. okay. The Empire of the Holy Spirit. What a great title. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been really good to kind of catch up like this and yep, uh, be able to great. Thank you. Talk, talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, and I do hope people will pick up pick up those books. And uh, until next time. Yep. God bless. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.